It is a characteristic that is prominent in our society today. And if you are honest with yourself this morning, you would have to admit that you need some shouted out because it is staining your personal life. And the subject that he addresses is the subject of prejudice. And the question that James would want to ask us as a church and as individuals today is, do we make everyone welcome? You say, well, yeah, we make everybody welcome. I mean, Ryan just welcomed everybody. We have a welcome center. We have a visitor card. The first word is welcome. We have a bulletin that says welcome. We have a website that says welcome. Everybody's welcome here. But see, more particularly, the, the question that James would want to ask us is, is everyone equally welcome? Do we warmly receive everyone without consideration of social, cultural, financial, or racial factors? The question framed in the wording of Paul in Romans 15.7 would be, do we accept others just as Christ accepted us? Or are we partial? Are we prejudiced? Now, as usual, James doesn't dance around the issue. He jumps right into it in verse 1. And notice what he says. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, that last phrase is one word in the Greek, and it literally means to receive by faith. It has the idea of evaluating on the basis of surface characteristics. Evaluating on the basis of externals, accepting others by appearances, sizing someone up based on how they look or how they dress and putting them in their place. The person that has this attitude would be someone we call a snob. A snob is someone who looks down at you with their eyes while their nose is looking up. And James is saying that attitude is inconsistent with our faith. And so the principle is this. You cannot hold on to faith in Jesus and personal favoritism toward other people at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. They are incompatible. Faith in Jesus and snobbery don't fit together. Faith in Jesus and prejudice don't fit together. Faith in Jesus and respect of persons doesn't fit together. This word is used several other times in the New Testament. Every other time it's used of God to tell us that God does not do this. God does not show partiality. God is not a respecter of persons. God does not receive people by face value. In fact, interestingly, the phrase, he makes no distinction, is used two times in the book of Romans. The first time it's used in Romans chapter 3, where it says, there is no distinction for all have sinned. And the second time it's used in Romans chapter 10, where it says, there is no distinction for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So when it comes to sin 
with God, there's no distinction. And when it comes to grace with God, there's no distinction. You see, God never judges on the basis of externals. He never judges on the basis of appearance, of how wealthy you are, of what you look like, of whether you have designer jeans on, whether you have a designer purse, what color your skin is. God looks at the heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel is sent by the Lord to anoint a king. Now, Israel already had a king, King Saul. He looked like a king. He was tall. He was handsome. He was strong. The Bible says he was a head taller than everybody else in Israel. So he looked kingly, but he didn't act like a king. And so Samuel went to appoint a king, and he pulled aside the family of Jesse to a feast. And Jesse brought his sons with him. And when his first son came in, named Eliab, the firstborn, Samuel immediately thought to himself, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Jesse paraded seven of his sons in front of Samuel, and each time Samuel said, this is not the guy. And finally, he had to ask Jesse to find out he had another son, his youngest son, the runt of the litter, the one who was so unlikely to be king, he didn't even bring him. He was tending the sheep. He went out and got him and brought him in, and when he saw this youngest son, Samuel said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And it was David about whom God says in Acts 13, He is the man after my own heart. God doesn't judge on the basis of appearances. God looks at the heart. And the same should be true of you and me if we're His children. Now the question is, is that so? You know, we always say, don't judge a book by the cover, and then what do we do? We spend most of the time judging books by the cover. Maybe a better saying would be, clothes make the man. You ever hear that one? Or more accurately, clothes make our opinion of the man or of the woman. You see, we are prone by fallen nature to evaluate people on surface characteristics. We are prone by our fallen nature to be prejudiced. And as James writes this in the first century, there were a lot of issues going on in that society. They, they had the, the prejudice of Jew and Gentile. The Jews hated the Gentiles. That's why when Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, remember he fled and God had to send him a whalogram to get him back on track and get him to Nineveh, and then he got to Nineveh And he preached in Nineveh, and the whole city repented. It was one of the greatest revivals in history. And what does Jonah do in the last chapter? He goes out on the hillside outside of Nineveh and pouts because he hates the Gentiles. Peter, even after he's saved, in Acts chapter 10, God's going to send him to Cornelius, a Gentile, to open the church to the Gentiles. And Peter is so prejudiced, he has to give him a vision of 
clean and unclean animals coming down on a sheet, and he has to give him the vision three times to get it into his head that God is no respecter of persons. There is to be no prejudice. So the Jew and Gentile thing was a huge thing in the first century. Jews and Samaritans, they hated Samaritans. In fact, they would walk all the way around Samaria just so they wouldn't step foot in that country. They hated them so much. And on one occasion when Jesus took the disciples into Samaria and a city refused to, to have them come in, James and John came to Jesus and said, you want us to bring down fire from heaven and burn them up? They hated the Samaritans. Those were prejudice issues. In fact, they were deeply ingrained in them. They felt so strongly about them that they thought it was God's will that they hate these people. When you look at your life today, What's an area of prejudice for you? Just, just honestly, what area, what person do you see and almost immediately you categorize them and put them in their place? Maybe for you it's race or, or culture. You ever hear there's a major plane accident and you run to the TV and you go, oh, good, it's in China. People died. It doesn't matter if they're in China or the United States. Culturally, culturally sometimes we're prejudiced toward people. Maybe for you it's fame. You know, you're, you stargaze at people. You idolize people. If, if David Freeze walked in here today, you'd be like, all, all over him, you know, mumbling, couldn't find the words to say because you're so impressed with his fame. That's prejudice. Maybe for you it's age. I don't like old people. I don't like Dan Green. I don't like young people. I can't relate to young people. Maybe for you it's, it's a doctrinal thing, some secondary doctrine, and that's why we have so many denominations, people fighting over things that sometimes are not that important. Maybe for you it's music. I like country, and he likes rap, and we don't relate to each other. Or I like hymns, and they like choruses, and so we're prejudiced toward each other. If we're honest, we have areas where we're prejudiced. What's interesting is that James attacks an area that is universal because everybody struggles with this. They struggled in the first century. We still struggle with it today. And that issue is the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And as James lays out this principle in verse 1, what I like is that he describes us a certain way and he describes Jesus a certain way, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Notice how he describes us at the beginning of verse 1. He says, my brethren. Now, he started this book calling us the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He doesn't choose to call us saints here. He doesn't choose to call us the church. Instead, he calls us my brothers. Why? Because he wants to remind us that we're family. He wants to remind us that we are all brothers and sisters in the family of God. I have two brothers. 
When I look at one of my brothers, you know what I see? I see my brother. If my brother had, one of my brothers had a lot of money, it wouldn't impress me. If one of my brothers had no money, it wouldn't surprise me. You know, it's, it's, uh, I see them and they're my brothers and I love them and I care about them because they're my brothers. In fact, I don't even look at them a whole lot of times and even see details. I just see, that's my brother. Norm is my brother. I don't like to say that, but he is. Uh, I'm a little prejudiced toward him. But sometimes people ask me, does Norm have a beard right now? I go, I don't know. I don't notice whether he's got a beard, he doesn't have a beard. He's my brother. We have, uh, in our nuclear family, we have eight people. We have four black, four white, see, I can't even count, four white, three black, one mixed. It's an interesting family. We are a blended family. Um, Oftentimes when we're out together, which is rare when we're all together, people will stare at us. (laughs) Now, I think they're probably staring at us because we like to sing, we are family, you know. But uh, actually, I think they stare at us because they want a scorecard to figure out who's who in this group. But you see, we are a blended family, and there's no pecking order in our family. Everybody is equal in the family. That's what family is about. We love each other because we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. And James is really reminding us that in the family You don't judge by appearance. You don't judge by material goods. You don't judge by skin color. And then notice how he describes Jesus in verse 1. He says he is our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Or literally, he is the glorious one. Now, why does he describe Jesus that way? Well, because in light of the glory of Jesus... Man is insignificant. You're judging on the basis of externals and you need to understand the glorious Lord Jesus Christ because then it'll bring man into focus for you. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple And there were seraphim around, which are angels, and they had six wings, and two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and they said, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord in all his glory. And you remember how he responded? He said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Nobody is very significant when you get a glimpse of the glory of the Lord. If you have two candles in a dark room, you might compare them and say, boy, this candle's really bright and that one's flickering. But you take those two candles out in the noonday sun, guess what? You no longer see any difference in the candles. In fact, you don't see the candles at all in light of the glory of the sun. And that's what James is telling us. He is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're looking at him, man himself is insignificant. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'm not too impressed with the external man. He's just a candle. When I see the glorious one, Jesus Christ. And so the principle is, it's incompatible for anyone who professes faith in Jesus to be a snob, to be prejudiced, to judge on the basis of appearance. Which brings us secondly to the pattern or the illustration. And James is going to show us what it means to have personal favoritism in verse 2. Notice what he says. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. Stop right there. One man comes in and James says he's got on a gold ring. Or literally, he is a gold-fingered man, a gold-ringed man. Now in that day, they would often, just to show off, they would wear a gold finger on every ring if they could afford it. Not very practical, but made their point. They were rich. So this guy comes in and he's got this status symbol. People see it. Flash, bling. There's the gold rings. Today it would be a Rolex watch. Today it would be if someone drove up in a Lamborghini and got out, or drove up in a Jaguar, brand new Jaguar, and got out. We go, wow. That's a status symbol. And then it says he has fine clothes. That word fine means bright, shining, flashing. Some people go to church to close their eyes. Other people go to church to eye their clothes. This guy comes and he's got an Armani suit on. He looks like he belongs on the cover of GQ magazine. He's he's strutting in like a peacock. He enters the church. And then he says another man enters and he's poor. He's got no rings, no frills, no ornaments, no status symbol. And he's got on dirty clothes or shabby clothes. They're they're two sizes too large. They're ten years out of date. They're worn and they're torn. These two guys come into the church and James' question is, what are you going to do in that situation? Look at verse 3. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. And you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down by my footstool. You pay special attention. You look with favor on the man who has the fine clothes. And you say, come right in. Let me introduce you to the pastor. You sit right here in this good chair. And then you look at the poor man and you say, you stand over there by the wall. Or better yet, you come over here and sit by my feet. What are you saying? It's a double insult. You're inferior, so I want you to sit by my feet. In fact, I'm a little suspicious about you. So I kind of want to watch you. So you sit right here where I can keep an eye on you. Now what is this treatment based on? Nothing more than external observation. Nothing more than this man has wealth and this man doesn't. You say, well, Dan, I would never do that. What's the first question we usually ask somebody when we're introduced to them? What do you do? 
Now, what's behind that question? How much do you make? What's your status? How important are you? See, we want to rate them. And if we're honest, we are more inclined to be friendly to people that are like us. Or if you don't like yourself, somebody you want to be like. So we say, well, I, I want to, I'm inclined to go to someone who's like me or better than me in my interpretation of that, and so that I am inclined to shy away from the person who is less like me, different than me. You know, sometimes it's hard to talk to somebody who's not from my same cultural, educational background. In fact, even education sometimes trumps culture. It's easier to talk to somebody who's college-educated from Ghana than it is to talk to the person when you say, well, what do you do? And he says, well, I sit downtown on the curb and I panhandle. It takes some effort to relate to a person like that. So James says, these two guys walk in and you show special treatment to the one who has more money. Now, what's the problem with that? Look at verse 4. James says, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now, when you discriminate, what you're really doing is you're setting yourself up as judge and jury. When you promote someone or demote someone based on surface characteristics, you are saying, I am the judge, and I'm going to make my ruling here. You know what the symbol is for justice? It's the blindfolded lady with the scales. She's blindfolded because she's impartial. She's not seeing peripheral things. She's just judging the facts. And James is saying, when you judge on externals, you're setting yourself up as judge and you're pulling the blindfold off. And you're being partial. And he says there's two problems with that. You're guilty of two things when you do that. Number one, you're guilty of hypocrisy. Notice verse 4, there's a word there. He says, have you not made distinctions? That's the same word James used in James chapter 1 and verse 6 of the double-minded man, the man who is looking two directions. And he says of him that he is doubting, he is wavering, he is tossed like the surf. What he's saying is that if on one hand I claim to have faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and I claim that all believers are my brothers, and on the other hand, I am making distinctions based on wealth or dress or skin color. That's hypocrisy. And then he says there's a second thing you're guilty of. And that is evil motives. When you look at others and you're all about the surface, it's because you've got a problem that is below the surface. You see, behind this action of prejudice is an evil motive. And what's the motive? 
What's the motive for showing preference to a wealthy person over a poor person? Well, the motive is self-gain. Maybe he'll give me some money. Maybe he'll help me get a job. Maybe I can make some contacts through this guy. Maybe he'll loan me the jag. Now, the person sitting at my feet, he's got none of that to offer me. In fact, he's probably going to cost me some things. I'm probably going to have to loan him the Camry if I hang out with this guy. You see the motive that he's talking about? If you look in your heart, prejudice always comes with an evil motive. Now, don't overlook in verse 4 that word evil. Evil. When you are prejudiced, it's not just a surface issue. When you are prejudiced, it's not just a social issue. When you are prejudiced, it's not just the way you were raised. It's not just, I'm from the South. When you are prejudiced, it is evil. I uh, was sharing my testimony with the uh, Nehemiah interns this week, and I was talking about when I surrendered my life to the Lord, I was out in Denver, and I was a hippie. I had long hair and was hanging out there, and I uh, started going to a church. And uh, I kind of had as my fashion guide, I'm, Gilda Radner said, I make my fashion choices based on what doesn't itch. That was kind of my approach. I, I just had on whatever and went to church. So here I show up at church, and I've got this long hair and some kind of Mexican long shirt and torn jeans and sandals. And I walk in, and in that culture back then, it was a more dressed-up style for church. And I came in. The third week I was there, they asked me to serve communion. Now, what does that tell you about those people? They were accepting of me. They looked beyond the surface and said, we care about the heart. Today, that would be synonymous probably with a skater kid who came in here, looked like he lost a fight with a nail gun. You know, he comes in and he's different than you. You say, well, what about this guy? Well, I don't look at the surface. I want to look at the heart. Three weeks into his visit, would he be serving communion in our church? But let me ask it this way. Suppose two families come to this church. One family, because of no fault of its own, happens to be on welfare. The other family, the dad has a great job. He's well-known in the community. They walk into our church. Which one would you receive more warmly? Which one would you be more likely to walk over to and begin to talk to? Which one would you be more likely to invite to dinner or to your home? Or if both families were part of this congregation and, and they both had new babies, which would you be more likely to buy a gift for? Or if those men were equally qualified spiritually, which would be more likely to be recognized as an elder or a deacon? 
in our church. See, sometimes the answers to those questions are a little embarrassing. Sometimes they're quite revealing. Because I don't know if you're like me, but I like to think that I'm beyond those kind of distinctions. Came across a poem that hits us in this tender area. Paul's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. Paul's girl is young and pretty. My girl looks like a bale of hay. Paul's girl is smart and clever. My girl is dumb yet good. But would I trade my girl for Paul's? You bet your life I would. See, the truth is, no matter how much I try to deny it, my love comes with reservations. And I am prone, and you are prone, to put a high priority on physical and material factors. We all have that unpublished list. We wouldn't want anybody to see it. That unpublished list of conditions, expectations, qualifications, what it takes for you to be my friend. And that's prejudice. And James is saying that that is inconsistent with the faith that we're professing. In fact, he's saying it is hypocritical and evil for me to say, I believe in Jesus, he is my Lord and then act the very opposite of him by judging other people on the basis of their appearance. Jesus didn't look at outward appearance. In Isaiah 11:3, it says, And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. In fact, even his enemies noted that about him. In Matthew twenty two sixteen, the Pharisees said, You are not swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Jesus looked at the heart. Most people saw the widow who put her two coins in the temple treasury as insignificant. Jesus said she had more to offer than all the rest. Most people saw Peter as uneducated, arrogant, loud-mouthed, couldn't keep his commitments. Jesus saw him as a rock. Most people saw Matthew, the tax collector, as a thief and a traitor. Jesus saw him as a faithful disciple who would write a gospel. The disciples saw the woman at the well as sinful, as a Samaritan, Jesus saw her as an evangelist who would reach her entire city. You see, Jesus didn't look at a person's appearance. He looked at their heart. He didn't focus on their past. He focused on their potential. And James is saying that if I claim Jesus as my Lord, it is double-minded, it is hypocritical, And it is wrong for me to be partial, for me to be prejudiced, for me to favor the rich over the poor. Which brings us to the perspective in verses 5 and 6. 
where he says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? God has a special place in his heart for the poor. In fact, this verse says God has chosen the poor. Jesus said in Luke 4.18, He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the church, Consider your calling. Look around. He says, There are not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world and the base things of the world and the despised things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Now I want you to notice what he says in verse 5. Because James is not just saying that the poor have generally chosen God. He's saying that God has chosen the poor. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't choose any rich. It just means he hasn't chosen many rich. And if God doesn't respect riches, then you better not respect riches either. In fact, if you're rich, we are not privileged to have you here. You are privileged to be one of the few that God let in. And if you're looking around to see if there might be a rich person who's offended, let me tell you this. In comparison to the rest of the world, you're rich. You are the rich. If you have a mattress to sleep on, you're rich in comparison with the world. If you know what you're having for lunch, you're rich compared with the rest of the world. So when we think about rich, we need to think worldwide and third world country and realize we are privileged to get in because we're the few. Now what's God's perspective? Two things in this verse I want to touch on just in closing. And we're going to come back to this passage because I'm going to let James beat us up some more on this subject. Two things I want us to notice about God's perspective in verse 5. Number one, he says the poor are rich in faith. There is one thing that a poor person has that most rich people don't, and that is time for God. And some of you know that because when you had nothing God had more of you. Now you've got something and you don't seem to have time for God. You see, the person who has nothing knows that they need God. And so if you want to be where God is working, get around some people who have nothing. If you've never been to a third world country, Go. It will transform your life. If you can't go to a third world country, go to the inner city of a major city in the United States and look around. Get God's perspective. 
Go hang out with some people who have nothing because you can give them a few dollars and they can give you some faith. They're rich in faith. Second, God's perspective on the poor is that they are heirs of the kingdom. One of our problems with our perspective is we think because somebody is well off that they must be better off. God looks at it and says the poor person is the heir of the kingdom of God. James says the one you're looking down on, the one who is sitting on the floor by your feet is an heir. How can you discriminate against someone who is going to be on the top of the heap when the tables are turned? You're going to be saying, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, to that guy sitting on the floor in the kingdom. So let me ask you in closing, who are you putting in the cheap seats? In your mind, in your prejudice, in your evaluation of people, who are you putting in cheap seats? And as you answer that question, you need to understand, when I despise a brother because he's poor, I am dishonoring one whom God honors. I am looking down on one whom God has exalted. And I am showing no love for one that God loves and who loves God. And when I do that, I am running contrary to God's purpose and God's heart. I am thankful that God chose the poor. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, the poor, through his poverty might become rich. Jesus was in heaven. He looked down at us, and we are poor. We are spiritually bankrupt. Jesus didn't choose to judge us. He chose to come down and do something about it. He became poor. He became totally bankrupt himself by going to the cross, and we have in front of us the symbols of his poverty, the bread and the cup. Jesus died on the cross for you and me so that we might share his riches. Wow. The cross is the great equalizer. When you see him in his glory, you see how insignificant man is. When you see the cross, you realize what it cost to redeem us. And we could pay none of that. We were spiritually bankrupt. And when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what he means is we come in spiritual bankruptcy and say, God, I've got nothing to offer you because I can't pay one cent of my salvation. But I bow at the cross of Jesus and I accept the gift you've given me. And today as we take the bread and the cup, I'm going to challenge us 
to be honest before the Lord and just say, Lord, here's some areas of my life where I've been prejudiced. And I'm going to come and take the bread and cup today and I'm going to leave those things at the foot of your cross. And by your grace, I'm going to see people from your perspective and have the compassion and care that you had for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this bread and this cup, symbols of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one, the one who left heaven to come down here, who lived in poverty on this earth and then died on the cross in shame and ridicule. All for me, all for you. And Lord, I pray today as we take the bread and cup, you would give us hearts of thanksgiving, hearts of appreciation, but also hearts of humility to go from here and be your hands and feet to reach out to those who you have chosen, the poor of this world, the downcast, the outcast. And that we might treat them with your love and your grace with no distinction. In Jesus' name.